Welcome to the podcast of the Consortium for History of Science, Technology, and Medicine. I'm Matthew Hofarth. Today is March 30th, 2021, and I'm speaking with Stephen Kenny, who is a senior lecturer in the Department of History at the University of Liverpool. His research and teaching explore histories of race, slavery, and medicine in the context of the 19th and 20th century United States. Thank you for joining us, Stephen. Thank you, Matthew. I greatly appreciate the invitation. To start, could you please give us an overview of the practice of medicine in the Jim Crow South? Yes. I think in taking an overview of medicine under Jim Crow in the South, inevitably one has to address the problem of a system of entrenched racism and its impact on the practice and use and abuse of medicine. As numerous scholars have observed and evidenced, perhaps no more exhaustively than Michael Byrd and Linda Clayton, and few as effectively as Joe Fagan and John Hoberman, racism in medicine is a problem with deep historical roots that has continuously impacted negatively on black health since 1619 and the first recorded arrival of Africans in North America. The research that I've undertaken builds on and engages with the work of such scholars and explores disturbing connections between the systems of slavery, race and medicine in 19th and early 20th century America, revealing the deep-rooted racist nature of professional medical education, research and practice under slavery and Jim Crow segregation, the career opportunities that so-called Negro medicine brought, and the enormous scale and intensity of the white medical profession's exploitation of enslaved, racialized, and racially segregated subjects. When turning to professional medical practice, it can be seen that all of the key training, networks, and power bases of medicine in the American South, including apprenticeships, private practice, colleges, hospitals, libraries, museums, journals, textbooks, and societies, operated through and in parallel with the systems of slavery and segregation's ruthless traffic and exploitation of black bodies. White medical students, as a matter of course, for example, expected education and training based on the observation, dissection, analysis, and experimental treatment of black bodies. Black people were not only subject to general everyday stereotyping by whites as being physically, morally, culturally, and intellectually inferior, but were also, in a long-running, open and endless experiment, were framed, categorised by science and medicine as both inferior and worse, subhuman. White racial scientists and physicians invented a catalogue of so-called Negro diseases that both changes over time and in relation to modes and hazards of enslavement and segregation, as well as the agendas and fantasies of whites. And it's a list that only ever accumulates, including specific racialized forms of tetanus, leprosy, consumption, pneumonia, as well as emotional and psychological conditions. White doctors, even including those in remote rural locations, routinely sent reports of experiments on black subjects to medical journals, trafficked black bodies and specimens to medical colleges, and harvested black human biomaterials for their own private use and personal collections. Medical colleges openly advertised the availability of black bodies to prospective students, while medical societies relied on black bodies and specimens for demonstration and display. 
Students too wrote graduating theses based on the medical manipulation of black subjects and specimens. Indeed, it wouldn't be going too far to say that in Southern medicine, there was an avid cult of the black specimen and a widespread acknowledgement of the essential role played by black research subjects. My research has also brought to light an extensive network of specialist so-called Negro hospitals. These were the grimmest of slavery's institutions, and these hospitals were often the sites of risky medical research and were closely linked to slave traders who were anxious to patch up their human stock for sale. A typical, though well-known, example here would be James Marion Sims, who located his private slave hospital one block away from a slave depot and less than two blocks away from the main slave market in Montgomery. And that was no accident. Large numbers of individual doctors routinely advertised in southern newspapers that they would pay cash for enslaved people suffering from chronic diseases. And the fate of these traffic medical subjects, of course, as in the Sims case, assumed the very worst of possibilities. After slavery, under the system of racial apartheid, while black health was neglected and black people were mythologised, pathologised, stereotyped and stigmatised in various ways, the demand for black bodies, specimens and test subjects only increased in scale, along with the further development of professional medicine. Not only do we see this kind of demand highlighted in the case of two of the most well-known examples of human experiments on black subjects in the 20th century, the United States Public Health Service's study of untreated syphilis in the Negro male, also known as the Tuskegee Syphilis Study uh, in Macon County, Alabama, and the unconsented harvesting of Henrietta Lacks's malignant cancer cells, an incalculably valuable human biospecimen at Baltimore's racially segregated Johns Hopkins University Hospital, but also on a frequent and commonplace basis in major medical centres across the American South, especially in cities such as Augusta, Georgia, Charleston, South Carolina and New Orleans, and well before Tuskegee. The long history of racist framing of black bodies and diseases, differential treatment, abuse and exploitation, created a legacy of mistrust and fear towards white physicians in the African-American community. Um, that, of course, continues to this day, often resulting in an understandable reluctance to participate in medical trials and take up new treatments and vaccines. In some of your recent work, you've written about the surgeon Rudolf Mattis. Who was Rudolf Mattis, and why does his story matter for the history of medicine? Rudolf Mattis was a very long-lived American surgeon. He died in 1957, aged 97. Uh, Mattis was also a prolific medical writer, mainly based in New Orleans, who has almost universally uh, been remembered as one of the medical surgical greats, as a father or pioneer by his biographers and memorialists to date. He went on to build a lucrative career and an international medical reputation that was substantially based on clinical observations and surgical encounters with poor black patients in New Orleans's charity hospital. As an aside, I think we should really always be suspicious and curious where doctors and scientists are labelled fathers, thinking here of the father of gynaecology I've already mentioned, Sims, or the father of microscopy, Van Leeuwenhoek, the father of histology, Malpighi, the father of physiology, Robley Dunglison, or the father of taxonomy, Linnaeus, 
all of whom in their writings or their theories position black human beings as inferior. Back to Mattis, official and physician-authored biographies celebrated Mathis for his work developing local, regional, and spinal anesthesia, and in the intravenous uh, use of saline solutions and serums for the treatment of shock, hemorrhage, and collapse, as well as in the areas of thoracic, intestinal, and cranial surgery. So he was at the very pinnacle of the professional medical elite, and as his protege, his chosen successor, Isidore Cohn, made plain in the subtitle of his biography of Mattis, most mid-20th century medical professionals, at least in public, saw Mattis as nothing other than one of the great pioneer surgeons. Mattis was also part of the white social elite, with roots in the regime of chattel slavery. So he was born in 1860, just before the Civil War, on a plantation, and delivered by an enslaved midwife in St. John the Baptist Paris, Louisiana, to Spanish immigrant parents who worked in pharmacy and medicine. Narciso, Rudolf Mattis's father, was the employee of a wealthy sugar planter who gave the Mattis family a very comfortable house and two slaves to tend it, uh, as well as an impressive salary. And Cohn, Mattis's biographer, speculated that the medical opportunities presented through this job offered by this wealthy sugar planter gave Narciso not only a good salary, but also uh, presented medical opportunities. Um, so Mattis was raised and educated in a culture of racialized medicine, characterized by the commonplace American tradition of dissections and experimental surgeries performed on black subjects. Yet what the celebratory narratives of Mattis's career, uh, what they leave out, and what, for example, medical photographs in his archive reveal, is that significant numbers of the operative procedures for which Mattis is best known, such as vascular surgery for the treatment of aneurysms, uh, which led William Osler to hail him as the father of vascular surgery, these operations were developed using black human patients and research subjects at charity. Another important missing chapter from his official biography concerns Mattis having made a significant contribution to the literature on racial science and medical racism. His essay, The Surgical Peculiarities of the American Negro, was published in a widely circulated and influential textbook, Systems of Surgery. There it was titled The Surgical Peculiarity of the Negro, a title tweak, which seems to be an attempt to gain further reach and a wider audience for this work in an era of American imperialism and uh, internationally colonial expansion. So why did Mattis focus on studying disease in black patients? As well as a long life, Mattis enjoyed a long tenure as a visiting surgeon to Charity Hospital from roughly 1886 through 1922, and oversaw many hundreds, if not thousands, of clinical cases that included those admitted to segregated ward spaces in Charity Hospital, reserved for black male and female patients. This role enabled Mattis to hone and display his surgical expertise, to develop his knowledge of pathology and related technical proficiencies, which also included the use of photography and other means of visualization. A significant number of Mattis's reports to the New Orleans and Medical Surgical Journal in this era 
for example, featured unusual cases, new approaches, or pioneer surgeries that were undertaken at charity. And many of these published case histories were illustrated, as it had for the teaching of anatomy and surgery in the 19th century. Charity Hospital provided a vast resource of clinical subjects and bodies for pathological and surgical inquiry, and also built additional facilities. A new dead house, pathological laboratory and museum opened in 1884. The hospital hired specialist personnel and bought new equipment that included photographic tools to further medical research. Stemming from this work at Charity, in 1895-96, Mattis published the illustrated System of Surgery textbook essay, The Surgical Peculiarities of the Negro, and a longer, unillustrated pamphlet version based on 10 years of clinical practice and surgical interventions at charity. In the opening section of this essay, Mattis positioned his work in the long tradition of Western scientific studies of racial differences, confirming and reinforcing what were then consensus white perceptions of so-called black anatomical peculiarities and uh, what he saw as the lowly status of the Negro in human evolution. From Charity Hospital's statistical data on the relative mortality of diseases such as tuberculosis and syphilis, that showed black patients dying at two or three times the rate of whites, Mattis drew the conclusion that the coloured race is degenerating, as he termed it. These degenerative tendencies, he claimed, could be explained by the influence of unfavourable hygienic surroundings, unfavourable social and moral environment, the causes which lead to bad heredity, vice, dependency and degradation, all acting simultaneously upon what he saw as an ethnologically inferior and passive race, struggling for existence with a superior, aggressive, dominant white population. Moulded by the ideological and social context of Jim Crow segregation, Mattis's reading of black health in New Orleans held no meaningful therapeutic value and blamed the incidence of disease on black sufferers, ignoring the key determinants of poor health, poverty, inadequate diet, sanitation, education, and substandard housing, for example. So in taking this stance, Mattis was very much in tune with his contemporaries at Tulane and further afield, such as the German-born Prudential Life Assurance Company statistician Frederick Hoffman, who also produced an influential treatise at this point in time, published in the same year, actually, as, as Mattis's essay in 1896, that claimed black people were particularly disease-prone and were a dying race. Uh, this was Hoffman's race traits and tendencies of the American Negro. So Mattis was also in broad agreement with the fundamental claims and politics of previous generations of racial scientists and anthropologists and their racial distinctions formulated through various measurements and comparisons of black and white bodies. So Mattis agreed, for example, that the bones of black feet were flatter and longer than those of whites, with more curve to the tibia, a flatter thorax, and that there were peculiarities, as he termed it, in the femur, clavicle and scapula that gave, as he termed it, a greater analogy with the simian skeleton than in the white race. Really nasty phrase there. But Mattis argued that none of these physiological differences were of surgical interest. And it was in the field of surgery that Mattis was most keen to develop a reputation. 
particularly at this point in the 1890s through his research on black skin and tumour formations in African-American patients, a programme of research that had been mostly forgotten. As matters noted and characteristically overstated in the Surgical Peculiarities essay, this was, as he put it, a curious and interesting field of inquiry still awaiting a pioneer explorer. Yet since the earliest encounters with Africans, white Europeans have been fascinated with black skin, posing questions, provoking dissections, comparative anatomical investigations that enacted a continuous global harvest accumulation and exchange of specimens, including skulls, bones, embryos, as well as skins and tumours. So in capsule, matters focused on studying disease in black people because of tradition, because of access, proximity, opportunity, and the medical culture. How can we understand the fact that Rudolf Mattis and his colleagues thought it was acceptable, and indeed medically advantageous, to use black people as experimental subjects? I've mentioned that one perspective on Mattis's research on black medical subjects is that it needs to be seen as part of a long-running tradition in white medical science that began under slavery. Another dimension of that tradition was, as racialized commodities within the system of slavery, black bodies were particularly vulnerable to the career designs of Southern physicians who, by virtue of their privileged position within the white social order, were able to transform dead and diseased slaves into anatomical, clinical, pathological and museological resources as they sought to develop and consolidate their practices and reputations. So in the collections of anatomical anomalies and pathological extremes, Southern men tended toward the display of black bodies more often than those of any other race or ethnicity. By assembling museum and personal collections composed chiefly of body parts derived from black subjects, Southern physicians were aided by the racial framework of slavery and in turn themselves contributed to the process of racialization. As was the case with autopsies and surgical experiments, Southern physicians faced less public opposition in their appropriation and use of black bodies as specimens and of white bodies. Already inscribed with a mark of servile status, black bodies became further targeted and marked by medicine's practice of racializing anatomy and pathology. The spread and influence of biological racism in antebellum Southern medical education and research can be seen in the production of seemingly endless case histories, graduating MD theses, and even a journal, the Georgia Blister, devoted to exploring anatomical, physiological, and epidemiological differences between blacks and whites. As well as scrutinizing the most obvious difference of skin color, Southern physicians found deviations from an intangible classical white norm in the black facial angle, brain size, structure of feet, knees, eyes, stomach, liver, genitals, and much more. Black people, according to this logic, were allegedly insensible to pain, supposedly making childbirth easier for slave women, and were also identified as predisposed to dirt eating, dysentery, scrofula, consumption, and tetanus. Southern physicians and their apprentices seemingly found evidence of racial peculiarities and disease susceptibilities everywhere they looked. As anatomy, American ethnology and so-called Negro medicine developed in parallel in the antebellum era, 
Southern medical men and scientists manufactured racial knowledge, but also garnered prestige and achieved personal advancement through harvesting, preparing, supplying, displaying specimens that could be easily sourced from the bodies of slaves and the poor. Much of this anatomically derived knowledge was directly applied to the bodies of white patients, transferred across the racial boundary, which involved no small irony and a high degree of double thinking. So black people were apparently similar enough then to whites to be appropriate subjects for generating medical knowledge from anatomy, experiments, clinical observations, but could also be framed as different enough from whites to permit their wholesale exploitation. Slave bodies had uh, what could be described as an anatomical double character. They could be useful analogues of white bodies, but could also be framed as racially inferior and deserving of specialist treatment. So this highlights one of the fundamental dynamics of white racism under Southern slavery, set into a medical, anatomical and educational frame, which recognised African-Americans as human beings but only as lesser human beings. Most Southern doctors working under the system of slavery probably did not see any inconsistencies or were untroubled by them. The inability or unwillingness to recognise the humanity of the other was essential to the maintenance of slavery's racial order. So as heir then to this dark tradition, Mattis was in broad agreement with the fundamental claims and politics of slavery's racial scientists and anthropologists. And in line with the convenient racialized medical double thinking under slavery, he saw little or no surgical application that could result from distinctions formulated through various measurements and comparisons of black and white bodies. As Mattis put it, the bones of black feet might be flatter and longer than those of whites, with more curve to the tibia, flatter thorax, etc. But Mattis argued that none of these differences were of surgical interest. Further, reflecting on a decade of dissection to Tulane University Anatomical Department, Mattis stated that he'd found no evidence uh, that would give the appendix of the Negro an ethnic character. So the various advantages of privileged access to poor black patients at charity were hard for Mattis to ignore, and his carefully framed notion of a universal surgical body in his Surgical Peculiarities essay was a useful and opportune strategy to advance a broader personal, professional and pecuniary interest in the special anatomy and physiology of black skin and its appendages, as he put it. Despite holding a lot of racial prejudices that included a long-standing and commonplace white belief that the average black person displayed a woeful lack of hygiene, the sanitary regime of Charity Hospital enabled matters to declare a special interest in abnormal skin conditions or neoplastic formations, as he termed it, keloids, sarcoma, and other malignant growths. And this research program was bolstered by another persistent and widespread white cultural belief in a diminished sensibility of the black human nervous system to pain and shock. Mattis believed that this blunt sensibility, as he termed it, in combination with, again, as he phrased it in the essay, a more passive condition of the mind, made black people more favorable subjects for all kinds of surgical treatment with or without anesthesia. Such a deep-seated white notion 
white medical notion was, of course, really disturbing for black lives, for black patients. Keloids as one of these neoplastic formations, abnormal skin conditions that matters developed an interest in, were, were a particular uh, source of fascination for him. Um, even though he said black patients rarely sought treatment for this condition at Charity Hospital or anywhere else on the uh, New Orleans Tulane Charity Biomedical Complex, Mattis claimed that there was an extraordinary preponderance of the condition in the black population. And he undertook experiments in the Charity Hospital on this condition. And his experiments tried to remove keloids, uh, by by cutting them out, but totally failed to prevent the reappearance of the condition. Indeed, in his own account of these experimental interventions, Mattis revealed that surgical interference of this kind was harmful and caused keloidal tumours to spread. And in coming across the photographs of patients who were suffering from um, keloid uh, tumours in the Mattis photo archive, uh, there's, a, there's an unnamed patient who undoubtedly in one of the photographs was used to develop evidence and, and disseminate Mattis's racial scientific theories on this condition. But he might also have been the subject who had experienced one of Mattis's failed surgical experiments at charity. Could you tell us about how Mattis used photography in his work? Mattis collected displayed, shared, and used photographic evidence to both bolster and visualize his argument that there was, as he termed it, a special proclivity among the black population towards the development of benign tumors in various localities of the body. And the visual materials in his archive and publications demonstrate a particular interest in rare and sizable growths. So many of the subjects that appear in the photographs were not merely a proxy for the disease that uh, she or he was directed to display, but they also offered powerful visual evidence to support a scientific research project that deepened notions of racial difference. Um, a significant proportion of the Mattis collection's visual ar archives appear to have been produced during the late 19th and early 20th century, a time when Mattis was resident at Charity Hospital and a professor of general and clinical surgery at Tulane. There's about 150 or so medical photographs in the Mattis papers at Tulane's special collections. And the way in which the photographs appear or are found in the archive, to a large extent, highlights the original functions of these images as working scientific and medical objects. So there are many loose photographs. Sometimes uh, they appear to have been printed as multiples, which were used to identify the patient and record their diseases or injuries as part of a larger case file. The Mattis collection itself contains a small number of patient files from Charity Hospital and attached to some of these records or photographs. Uh, an example here would be a patient, 40-year-old black barber, who was admitted to Charity Hospital in 1912 uh, with an aneurysm of the carotid artery and autopsy less than two weeks later with a post-mortem diagnosis cause of death as a chronic coronary disease. So these image objects might have functioned as 
objects of reference for hospital personnel, especially for conditions and illnesses that demanded close observation. If they were sufficiently interesting in pathological or surgical terms, some of the images would have been passed between colleagues on the same ward, elsewhere within the hospital, and across the city's broader biomedical complex and community. The images often circulated more widely too in professional correspondence to different cities, states, nations, internationally, and in the drafts and proofs that eventually became medical publications. Some of the images were used in educational displays and professional presentations at national or international conferences, and also for discussion and display at local, regional and state uh, medical society meetings. The very circumstances in which one photograph of a woman with an enormous tumour uh, fibroma surfaced. Other loose images would have been deposited in the files of the pathology department, also in the College Medical Museum, and in the collections of individual physicians like Mattis. Copies of some of the photographic images were also included in an album of medical photographs that belonged to Mattis. Um, and, and further, certain images would have been used in all of these contexts. In a number of the photographs, particularly those that appear in the Mattis album, the close framing of a pathological condition, visible through and beneath the skin, the ultimate marker for racial scientists and everyday racists alike, reinforced the notion of diseased black subjects as profoundly other and degenerate, and drew attention to the value of these cases as medical research opportunities, as curiosities readily transformed into legitimate objects of scientific observation, rumination, and experimentation. So I argue that not only did medical photography function as a powerful race-making tool in the era of Jim Crow, but demonstrate that such images captured, legitimated, and enabled an ideologically driven an experimental, racialized medical research agenda. As other visual documents in Mattis's archive reveal, many of the test subjects for Mattis's key surgical breakthroughs and notions of racial pathology discussed in his Surgical Peculiarities essay were developed using the patients he encountered at charity, especially black men housed on the hospital's racially segregated Ward 2. If one looks at an overview of the Mattis album sample, there are patterns that provide a measure of the culture, ideas, society, and practices that shape the image's production and uses as they circulated between various sites and audiences. The album once contained 60 photographs, thereabouts. 50 images remain in the album in the archive, which include men, women, and children of various ages and ethnicities, as well as body parts, body fragments, and specimens. But a clear majority of the patients in this album, this subsample of the overall photographs in the Matters archive, are black and male. This is a characteristic of the typical broad patterns in the display and use of human resource subjects throughout American medical history. The diseases in this subset of photographs illustrate a range of conditions that Jim Crow era white medical scientists, such as Mattis and his Tulane colleagues, argued were peculiar to and more prevalent among black subjects, including syphilis, tuberculosis, keloids, fibromas, and elephantiasis. 
There are brief handwritten captions in this album that provide some means of identifying the diseases depicted in many of the photographs, but very, very few details about the patients beyond age, gender and hospital ward. And many of the photo images in this album will remain a mystery. What lessons would you like listeners and readers to take away from your work on the intersections of race and medicine in the United States in the 19th and 20th centuries? Mattis's writings, visualizations, and surgical interventions at Charity and Tulane fit into a long tradition of racialized medical education, clinical practice, and human experimentation in New Orleans and across the American South. Indeed, activities that were always routine and widespread in American medical institutions, such as city hospitals, and which saw a decided upsurge well before the Tuskegee syphilis study was initiated. In one of the few fragments of scholarly commentary on Mattis's Surgical Peculiarities essay, medical historian David McBride drew attention to the uses and effects of this essay and pamphlet, which he said was a standard reference for medical and sociological research through World War I, postulating race distinctions as the basis for black-white health discrepancy. And McBride said that the essay remained influential in medical research down to the 1930s and beyond. So medical photographs such as those used to develop and illustrate Mattis's essay then played a key role in deepening racial stereotypes. And they circulated warped notions about black bodies and black health. Further, these images framed and targeted vulnerable black people depicted as human specimens, again, part of a much longer tradition in Western science. Today, these images and Mattis's surgical peculiarities essay serve as stark reminders of discredited notions of racial difference and racialized diseases that were once commonplace in medical science and clinical practice. As other historians of medicine and photography, including Daniel Fox and Christopher Lawrence and Larissa Heinrich have shown, there's nothing uncommon about the burden of sickness displayed in the Mattis visual archive. What he produced were typical pathological photographs of the period and similar to images made and displayed and circulated across Asia, Europe and the United States. In terms of how it was used, it's also mostly typical, a diagnostic description, part of a record of cases and interventions, a learned observation, a valuable form of professional and social currency and a trophy of sorts with a human being framed as a spectacle intended to be of interest to both medical and popular audiences. Read in context and against the grain of their intended purpose, however, these sources can, I think, be used as a form of social healing to help reconstruct a fuller and more sensitive portrait of black health and the black patient experience in the era of Jim Crow and restore the presence and personhood of these human subjects to the historical record, which they're decidedly absent from at the moment. Many of the photographs are scenes in which the patient's fragility and vulnerability overwhelm any intended coding, be it clinical, pathological or racial, and also overwhelm any intended diagnostic coding or formal reading. If you take a look at the article on Mattis in the American Journal of Public Health, you'll see a partially naked patient with a chronic case of elephantiasis standing precariously on an elevated plinth, and it's among the most troubling 
of this uh, four to archive, Mattis's four to archive. And such images are very much a special category of patient record and raise important questions concerning issues of agency, consent, privacy, and appropriate use and display, not only by historians of race, health, and medicine, but also by museum professionals and also by readers. Um, so I think the challenge really in, in using these images is to break out of the stigmatizing racialized specimen framework adopted by Mattis for his essay focusing on and categorizing alleged pathologies of blackness and to recognize the humanity of the subjects and reflect on the various forms of structural violence that undermine their health. So I think that's one direct way really of challenging the legacy of medical racism, but the last couple of years in particular have shown us several others as scholars, activists, creative people, even politicians have started to rethink, repurpose and remove racist symbols in public spaces. And this has been the case with the James Marion Sims monuments and memorials in New York, now in Montgomery and hopefully at some point in time in Columbia. But there are still schools and libraries and prizes named after matters. Thank you, Stephen, for sharing your work and your perspectives with us. Thank you, Matthew, for your interest and for the excellent questions. Stephen Kenny's work can be found in numerous scholarly journals, including the American Journal of Public Health, the Bulletin of the History of Medicine, the Journal of the History of Medicine and Allied Sciences, and Social History of Medicine. This has been a podcast from the Consortium for History of Science, Technology, and Medicine. You can find more resources for exploring this topic, other podcasts, video forums, archival spotlights, as well as opportunities to connect with our community of scholars at chstm.org. This podcast is made possible with the generous support of the Pew Charitable Trusts, the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation, and the Rita Allen Foundation.